Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. The title of my message today is Where All Billboards? Where All Billboards? Of course, we're in week six out of week seven in our series Transformed Together, where we have been exploring this idea that we cannot possibly take the next step in our spiritual journey on our own. God has created us to be a part of his family. He has created us to ride the train, as it were, together. And so as we've, we've taken this journey over the last uh, five weeks, we've gotten off at different train stops. It's like we're riding the four, and uh, we took a stop over where we talked about devotion. And we took a, a stop o- over, over by uh, Borough Hall where we talked about um, stewardship. And we talked about different things that we believe that God wants us to grow in collectively as a family. Today we're talking about mission. We're talking about mission. So in Acts chapter 28, we're going to cover verses 26 to 40. But before we do that, I want to define what I mean by mission. I should have that definition up here on the screen. Mission simply means I am intentionally sharing my faith with my friends and family. Now this is a very clear um, clear thing to figure out whether or not we are doing it or not, right? Um, if, uh, if you're trying to lose weight, what's the best way to tell if you're losing weight? The scale you step on, right? And it tells you, scientific, right? You either are or you aren't losing weight. Everybody agree on that point? Okay, so what we want to do is we want to do something that we can very easily understand either we're doing it or we're not. So we are defining mission in very clear and simple terms as I am intentionally sharing my faith with my friends and family. Now, we've talked a lot about our triangle. So uh, we've talked about three rhythms of life symbolized on the three sides of this triangle, up, in, and out. So what do you think mission is? What corner of the triangle would mission fall? Out, okay, because it's focused on us and our relationship to our communities that we live in, okay? So, in Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40, we see an encounter between this guy named Philip and a guy whose name we don't know, we just know him as an Ethiopian eunuch. So let's see what God's word has to say. Verse 26, we're going to explore this passage and see three ways that we are supposed to grow in mission, three ways that we can succeed at mission from this passage. It says in verse 26, Then an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Get up and go south on the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he got up and went. There he met an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home, sitting in his chariot, reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran up to it and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. He asked him, do you understand what you're reading? The man replied, how in the world can I unless someone guides me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture the man was reading was this. He was led like a sheep to slaughter and like a lamb before its shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In humiliation, justice was taken from him. Who can describe his posterity? For his life was taken away from the earth. 
Then the eunuch said to Philip, Please tell me, who is the prophet saying this about, himself or someone else? So Philip started speaking and beginning with the scripture, proclaimed the good news about Jesus to him. Now, as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, Look, there is water. What is to stop me from being baptized? So he ordered the chariot to stop and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. Now, when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away and the eunuch did not see him anymore, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, found himself at Azotus and as he passed through the area, he proclaimed the good news to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Pastor Woodley, would you lead us in prayer and then uh, we'll dive into this passage. Amen. All right. Three things, three simple things from this passage. Uh, we're going to do a little role play in this sermon. So it's going to be a little different. That's why there are two chairs down in front. Um, and uh, we are going to circle back around to this idea that we're all billboards. We're all billboards. Now, I don't know about you, but Sonia and I are always fascinated when we get on the subway and we see the marketing on the subway, right? There's, there's ads, there's good ads. There's bad ads. There's ads for Fresh Direct. There's ads for, um, uh, there's been this ad lately for condoms. I mean, there's all kinds of crazy stuff on the subway. You're seeing these ads too, right? And so you get on the subway and you can't help but look at the ads. The ads are there. They're screaming at you like a billboard. And sometimes it's good marketing. Sometimes you're like, I would never buy that. That's just dumb. Or... We've all probably had the experience when our family or friends come to town, they're like, we want to see Times Square. We're like, we don't want to see Times Square. It, that's for tourists, right? But they want to see it. So we go to Times Square with our friends and with our family. And what do we see? We see billboards. It's not your grandma's billboard, right? It is, it is a 21st century, flashing, glitzy, glamorous, neon billboard screaming for your attention. Whether it's, whether it's the, the more subtle and nuanced marketing on, in the ads on the subway, or whether it's the glitzy billboards and the moving electronic stuff going on in Times Square, we're all familiar with advertising. We're familiar with billboards. What I want to submit to you today is that we are God's billboards, that he's called us to be on mission to intentionally share our faith with our friends and family as walking billboards for Jesus. In order to do that, we have to do three things. First, we have to be available. So that's point number one. We got to be available to be on mission. Look at verse 26. It says, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, get up and go south on the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he got up and went. He got up and went. Now, uh, 
The first half of Acts chapter 8, which we don't have time to read that half of the chapter, records how Philip is up in Samaria and he's got this incredible ministry. If you might recall from last week when Woodley preached on the, uh, the selection of the first deacons in the church, Philip was one of those deacons. He was chosen in part to help keep the peace in this multi-ethnic church that was experiencing conflict along race lines. So there were these seven deacons, these Hellenistic Jews. Woodley explained that those are people who were ethnically Jewish, but culturally they were more kind of Greek. So they were kind of like bicultural. They were a bridge between the more strict Jews and then the Gentiles. And so Philip, because of the persecution initiated by this guy named Saul of Tarsus, this persecution kind of scatters the church. And at the beginning of Acts chapter 8, Philip and some of these other Christians from Jerusalem are on the run. And Philip ends up in Samaria and he starts preaching the gospel and he starts doing different cool things. And God is blessing his ministry. Everything is going well. And in verse 26, all of a sudden, an angel of the Lord comes to Philip and he says, get up, go south on the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he got up and went. I think it's interesting. The way the scripture reads, there is no hesitation. Philip doesn't pray about it. He doesn't put out a fleece. He doesn't have to consult with his friends. God has spoken. And when God speaks, you just obey. I think probably the writer of, of the book of Acts is trying to uh, remind us, is the way this story is written, remind us of the story of Jonah. Because the way the story of Jonah reads, it's pretty much the exact opposite. God says, get up and go. And then it says, Jonah got up and went. But Jonah went in the wrong direction. The way this is written, I think Luke, who wrote, who wrote this gospel, or who wrote this, this book, is trying to help us remember that story and see it contrasted here with Philip. An angel of the Lord comes to him, but he doesn't really tell him what's up. He says, get up and go. It's time to move. A little bit like Abraham, when God called him, God said, Abram, I want to take you into a far and distant land. I want you to get up and go. And Abram got up and went. So he tells them this angel comes from God, says, go south on this road that goes down from Jerusalem down to Gaza. And it's a desert road. Philip, you're going to be in the middle of nowhere. You've got this thriving, prosperous ministry. You're, you're planting this church up in Samaria. Everything's going well. It's cool. It's awesome. I just want you to go to the middle of nowhere. I want you to go in this dry, dusty, forsaken road traveled by some random people. I want you to go there. So Philip got up and went. You see, if we are going to successfully be on mission, we must first and foremost be available to Jesus. I heard one preacher describe it as putting your yes on the table. You don't stop and negotiate with God. You don't ask him, well, hold on, what are you going to ask me to do? Like, you know, what's that, what, what, what do you want me to do? You know, when somebody says, hey, can you do me a favor? And what, what do we normally say? We're like, oh, sure. Well, we, we don't know yet what the favor is. And a lot of times that can be problematic, right? But with God, that's exactly what our response should be. God says, I want you to serve. I want you to be on mission. I want you to intentionally share your faith with your friends and family. And our response should be, where? Who? Not whether or not we should do it. Because when our yes is on the table, we don't 
We don't ask God where. We don't ask what we should do, how we should serve. We simply obey. That's what Philip did. Philip was available. The problem becomes that a lot of us, we shrink back from this idea of mission. We shrink back from this idea of very intentionally sharing our faith. Because, for a lot of reasons, it's controversial, right? We just got off of uh, Thanksgiving, and uh, they always say that if you want to have a good Thanksgiving, there are two topics to avoid. What are the two topics? Politics and religion, right? Okay, so if you don't talk about that, you'll be cool. Um, Well, I'm, I'm all fine with skipping the politics one. That's cool with me, but... If we are truly Christians and we do truly believe that Jesus has transformed us, then maybe just maybe skipping the religious conversation is not an option for us. But we want to avoid conflict. We're not wired for conflict. Maybe a few of you are. You might need counseling. Um, But most of us, we don't naturally seek that conflict and that confrontation out. Sometimes I think we shrink back from being available because we've made this seem overly spiritual. We hear people saying, and and maybe you've even heard me say something like this. We say, oh, the Holy Spirit prompted me to go share my faith with this person across the street. So I went and did it. Uh, Nothing wrong with that. I'm not knocking that at all. The angel of the Lord came to Philip and prompted him to go do something. But a lot of times then what we do is we create this culture where I have to wait for the Holy Spirit to speak to me and to tell me to go share my faith with that person over there. And he never told me to. He never prompted me. I never heard a still small voice, so I didn't go share my faith. My friends, the entire Bible is the prompting of the Holy Spirit commanding us to share our faith with our friends and family. If that prompting of 66 books is not good enough for you, then no still small voice ever will be. You okay? A lot of times we can, we can kind of get sucked into that. We're like, oh man, I just have to wait for God to speak. In part because we've created that culture where we, where we think that's the way it works and that's not the way it always does work. In part, I think sometimes we use that as an excuse. I think sometimes it can be a matter of, of relationships. The longer you've been a Christian, the more tendency there is to become a part of the Christian bubble or the Christian cocoon. And so you're wrapped up like the caterpillar inside, and, and when you first came to Christ, all your friends were, were non-Christians, and you just knew a couple of Christians. But over time, because your church emphasizes family, you hang out together, you're always together, you're doing stuff together, you're loving being together, loving being with one another, and living life together, and being transformed together, and it's awesome, right? That's what we've been preaching. But... After a while, you start to lose your friendships with the outside world. I've got a quote on the screen from a a writer named Eric Michael Bryant who wrote a book called Not Like Me. It says, our personal relationships often betray our feelings for the world as well. Rather than befriending and loving those who do not yet follow Christ, it seems that the longer we follow Christ, the fewer people we actually know who believe differently from the way we believe. Maybe you can identify with that. You've been walking with Jesus for a while now. And suddenly you look around. People say this all the time. They're like, 
you know, I used to have all of these friends, but somehow for some reason they dropped me. And now I just have all my Christian friends. I think that's a serious and dangerous threat to the church. Because God has not called us to live in a bubble. He has not called us to exist within a cocoon. He has called us to be in the world. Yes, not of it, but in it. Because we can't influence it unless we're in it. When uh, um, there's a, a Bible scholar by the name of D.A. Carson, he said that in his opinion, one of the major problems with the church in America is that pastors are not friends with any out and out. He called them pagans. He's like, pastors need to be friends with some out-and-out pagans. And if, if they take that seriously and they develop relationships with those kind of people, we'll see change. I'd say we all should be, not just pastors. We need to be available to this idea of mission, like Philip was. I mean, there's no record even that we know that Philip knew what he was supposed to do. Although I bet he had an idea. Because Philip was walking with God. He was up there. Serving God, filled with the Holy Spirit. People were getting saved. Miracles were happening. I'm pretty sure he, he knew. He didn't know the details. But he knew he was supposed to go down that road to Jerusalem, to Gaza. And he knew that angels never showed up on his doorstep for no, no good reason. Philip's yes was on the table. He was available to Jesus to share his faith intentionally with those God put in his path. Second, we need to be willing to share the gospel with anyone. We need to be willing to share the gospel with anyone. So back in Acts chapter 8, let's look at verse 27. It says that Philip got up and went. And there he met an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. Now, this is a fascinating verse. I wish I had like two hours just to talk about this verse, but I know there's a football game on later tonight and you guys want to watch it. So I'm not going to do that. Emily has a bus to catch, so I can't do that either. Right. But this one verse contains so much good stuff that we can literally talk about it for a couple hours, but I'm going to try to condense it to a few minutes. Okay. Philip gets up and he goes and on this dusty road to nowhere, this road from Jerusalem to Gaza he comes across this Ethiopian eunuch. It says he's a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. He's in charge of all her treasury. He's in charge of the, the government's money. He's like the secretary of the treasury in modern American parlance. And it says that he had come to Jerusalem to worship. Now let's look at some pretty significant facets of this verse, beginning at the end. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. Now I don't know about you, but I find it incredibly significant and a little bit odd that this man who, as far as we know, is from Ethiopia, who has come to Jerusalem to worship. Who worships in Jerusalem? Jews. Jews in the Old Testament were the only ones who worshipped in Jerusalem. And who did they worship? The God of Israel, right? The entire Old Testament is structured around their worship of the one true God but there is this man, this Ethiopian eunuch, this high-ranking government official, this man of privilege and power who has come to Jerusalem to worship. You see, back in the Old Testament and, and in the, that first century when Jesus lived, they did this thing where they had proselytes, just like we share our faith with people who are not Christians and invite them to become Christians. 
First century Jews did that as well. It wasn't like a widespread practice, but they did it some. And apparently, this Ethiopian eunuch was one of these Jewish proselytes. He had come probably for one of the Jewish festivals, one of those feasts. Those of you who live around Jewish people here in Brooklyn, you, you see when they do the different feasts, the different Passover, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Boots, all these different things. And they celebrate and they observe them and then they have all this cultural stuff going on with it. He probably has come to Jerusalem for one such feast. He's come to worship. He doesn't maybe understand all the ins and outs of Judaism, but he has decided in his mind, apparently, that the Jewish God is the one true God. But the irony of this is that this man, of course, is not Jewish. What, what nationality is he? What does the verse say? He's Ethiopian. Now, you have to understand that in, in the ancient world, Ethiopia, the term simply meant it, it didn't correspond with modern day Ethiopia exactly, all right? But a, an ancient Ethiopian was someone from the ancient kingdom of Moreau. Moreau was just south of Egypt. It was a very powerful, very dominant dynasty that was run by these queens called Candace. Candace is not a name. Candace is a title. Now, I know people have the name of Candace, but in this verse, okay, Candace is a title, not a name. It's kind of like President Obama. Obama's first name is not president. That's his title. All right, got it? So this is Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. She rules over this ancient kingdom of Moreau. And she's got this guy, this secretary of her treasury, and he goes to Jerusalem to worship the God of Israel. So first off, you've got this irony where you've got this high-ranking government official, this black man in the midst of all of this Jewishness, and they're trying to worship the same God together. But of course, that leads us to the second irony of this passage. This man is a eunuch. Now, I don't know if you know what a eunuch is, but a eunuch is a man who has been castrated. Okay, I won't go any farther than that, but it's a man who has been castrated. Why is that significant? Well, it's incredibly significant to this passage because in order for an outsider to worship the God of Israel, you had to become Jewish. Well, how do you become Jewish? Well, you follow the Jewish food laws. You follow the Jewish rituals about washing your hands and all of these different things. Things that an outsider, things that an African from the kingdom of Moreau could do. He could say, I'll change my diet, especially when I'm in Jerusalem, going to this festival, this pilgrimage. I can follow all of these rules, sure. But the ultimate step in identifying with the God of Israel, at least in the first century Jewish mind, was for a man to be circumcised. Because this was the, the sign of the covenant that God had made with Abraham. And, and they, they really overblown. God never intended it to be this way, but they had identified this idea that to be Jewish was to be circumcised. To be circumcised was to be Jewish. They were one and the same. So when a, when a man said, hey, I'm, I'm African or I'm Asian or I'm, some, I'm from some other region of the world, but I want to follow your God. They'd say, okay, here's a bunch of things you got to do. Last and most important, you must be circumcised. Many men did that. These proselytes would do that in the ancient first century. But you could not do that if you were a eunuch. If you had been castrated, this would have been a physical 
impossibility. So what we have is a man who is riding in his chariot in the middle of nowhere. He's just got done worshiping the God of Israel. But even with his best efforts to worship God, he was on the outside. He could never be fully Jewish. He could never be brought to the center of the family. They could never pull out a chair for him and say, why don't you sit with us and eat with us and be part of our group? They said, you can come, but we need you to stay in the court of the Gentiles. And they actually had like a courtyard. They had a, they had a place for the women to stand far away, and they had a place for the foreigners to stand far away. They said, no, if you could get circumcised, we'd probably let you in a little closer. But because you can't, for the rest of your life, even though you want to worship this God, for the rest of your life, you were condemned to stay the farthest reaches, the farthest corners of the temple. And yeah, we know God is in the Holy of Holies. He's over there. You're never going to get close to him. This was his, his life. This is what he just probably experienced in Jerusalem. And now he's headed back. And his, his mind is swirling and he's wondering, what in the world is going on? I want to worship the God of Israel. I'm trying to cross all of these cultural barriers. I'm trying to do everything they ask of me. But I just physically can't do what they want. I can never become Jewish. And then Philip shows up, sent by an angel of the Lord who just kind of plops him down in the middle of the desert. And Philip runs up and sees this guy right there. The second key to serving Jesus on mission is to be willing to share the gospel with anyone and with everyone. To be willing to share the gospel with anyone and everyone. Philip isn't concerned about crossing cultural lines here. Philip isn't concerned about what might happen to his ceremonial purity as a Jew if he decides to share the gospel with someone who's not like him. In fact, the early church struggled with this. For about seven or eight years after Jesus told them to go and make disciples of all nations, they made disciples of Jews and only Jews for about seven or eight years. I believe that the first church was sinning. Jesus gave them their marching orders and they looked around and they're like, it's comfortable here. It's safe here. We're just going to stay with this group and reach people who are like us. All of a sudden, Philip is face to face with this guy from the ancient kingdom of Moreau, this very powerful individual, but a man who was broken. A man who was broken, a man who was lost, a man who was distant from God a man who is in need of help. And Philip isn't hung up on culture. Philip isn't hung up on saying, I'll, I'll talk to people who are like me. He's not intimidated by people who are different. In fact, that's what he'd been doing up in Samaria. And Philip meets this Ethiopian eunuch, probably at his greatest moment of need, as he's coming back from Jerusalem, discouraged and alone and feeling permanently on the outside. So first, we have to be available to Jesus. Second, we have to be willing to share the good news with anyone. Third, we need to point people to Jesus. We need to point people to Jesus. Look at verse 29. It says, the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran up to it and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. And he asked him, do you understand what you're reading? 
The man replied, how in the world can I unless someone guides me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture the man was reading was this. He was led like a sheep to slaughter and like a lamb before its shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In humiliation, justice was taken from him. Who can describe his posterity? For his life was taken away from the earth. Then the eunuch said to Philip, please tell me, who is the prophet saying this about? Himself or someone else? So Philip started speaking and beginning with the scripture, proclaimed the good news about Jesus to him. Philip shows up and he just starts talking about Jesus. This guy's come back from Jerusalem and, and what they do in Jerusalem at these different feasts is they, they read these various scrolls, Old Testament scripture. He comes back and he's got one of these scrolls and he's riding in his chariot. I guess some other guy's driving his chariot. I'm not sure how that works, but some guy's driving it and he's sitting there and he's reading this Isaiah scroll. He's reading from Isaiah chapter 53. And it's describing this suffering and broken servant. So Philip knows he's there for a reason. So he runs up to the chariot and he says, hey, do you understand what you're reading? Now, let's just stop right there. Philip here is bold. He decides to go for it. He could have like eased into it. He could have decided, well, well, let's talk about sports. Let's talk about the weather. Let's talk about something neutral. I got to build bridges. That's what you do with seekers, right? You build bridges. I'll become friends with them. We'll exchange letters. We'll be pen pals from Africa to Samaria. It'll work great. And maybe in a few years, the, the awesomeness of my Christian witness and testimony and this great relationship that I've developed, he'll get saved. Philip's like, forget that. I don't have time. He jumps up in the chair and he's like, do you know what you're reading? Do you understand? You see, Philip understood that he had been sent on a mission by the Holy Spirit, that this was what it was all about, and he was going to seize the opportunity. So he steps up into that chariot. The guy's like, how can I understand it unless someone tells me? And Philip says, that's what I'm here for. And beginning in Isaiah 53, Philip begins to explain to him Jesus. Isaiah 53, of course, is telling the story of how, uh, and this is before Jesus was ever born. This was an ancient prophecy of Isaiah telling the story of how the Messiah, God's suffering servant, would be crushed, would be broken as a substitute for his people. Philip explains that all of these prophecies come to a head in Jesus of Nazareth. This Jewish man who was so totally different, but yet so similar to this powerful government official from Moreau. He said, Jesus understands your pain. Jesus understands your loneliness. Jesus understands what it's like to be on the outside because he was the ultimate outsider. He was killed, judged for something that he had not done because he chose to be your substitute. Philip begins from Isaiah 53 to explain to him the gospel the good news of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And then he goes beyond there. We don't know what other verses he used. We don't know what else he said, but it says that he began here to point this Ethiopian eunuch to Jesus. You see, that's what mission is about. 
If I'm going to intentionally share my faith with my friends and my family, I have to point people to Jesus. A lot of times we don't do this because we feel like I don't know enough. I'm not smart enough. I don't have enough training or education or, you know, I've not been to seminary like you, Stephen. What am I, how can I do this? We really shrink back from this in part because we've overcomplicated it. It's really quite simple. We point people to Jesus. We say, let me tell you about this guy that changed my life. Let me tell you what Jesus did for me. Now, I've got two applications, two takeaways for us today. If we are going to, as a family, be available to Jesus, if we are going to be willing to share the gospel with anyone, and if we're going to point people to Jesus, there's two ways. First one, up here on the screen, is we are promoting, for the first time ever, a couple of mission trips here at Mosaic. Now, this is a picture of some uh, friends of mine, um, friends of the dad, in Cambodia. So, many of you guys have seen and observed mission, various mission teams that have come through here and served with us here at Mosaic, right? We had like 200 people come in last year. We'll probably have about 200 coming through this next year. As we serve with various mission teams from around the country, what we want to do is encourage you to pray about joining an international mission trip in 2016. We have two that we're promoting, both with one of our partner churches in Mississippi. They're planning the trips. They're doing all, all of the logistical work. We are asking people here to pray about going to either Cambodia or to Haiti. Um, so if you are interested in either of those trips, there are cutoff dates. You have to decide by a certain time. Uh, they cost money. Living on mission requires sacrifice. Um, so something you've got to plan for. Um, but we want to ask you to pray, to put your yes on the table. I know some of you are already automatically saying no. Can you, can you undo that in your mind? Don't do that. Put your yes on the table and see what God says. One trip to Cambodia and one to Haiti. I'd love to see some of the Mosaic family deployed around the world this year on these short-term mission trips. Second, and more relevant to our everyday lives, is that it is upon us to live a missional lifestyle every single day of our lives. Now, I know sometimes we feel like we can't do it. We don't know how. So we're going to show you how. Okay, so I've asked Woodley to come up, and uh, we're going to pass out um, some of these booklets. Sean, can you pass those out? Uh, can we make sure one of these mics is good for Woodley? You sit in the right chair, I'll grab the left. All right. So, um, what we are passing out, this is for you to take home. This is the story of the Bible in like four pages. Okay? Now, there is also an app. In fact, I'm going to use my app and not the, uh, not the book. Uh, so I have asked Woodley to put uh, up here and pretend to be a non-Christian. Can you, you think you can handle that? All right. So uh, are we live with your mic? Yeah. All right, cool. All right. So what we're going to do is 
Uh, every, I want everybody to follow along in the book, okay? I've got it on my phone. This is a free app. What I'm asking all of our missional family leaders to do is to download the free app, share it with your group. You can create a personalized group where only the people in your missional family have the link to this, and it allows you to have conversations together about how you are sharing your faith, and it allows you to track how you as a group are sharing your faith. So I'm going to do this with my mission family tomorrow night. Um, we're going to practice sharing the gospel with one another using this app. It's totally free, so there's no excuse. We should all be able to do this, all right? In fact, if, uh, I know some of you only are going to download off of the data plan, but if you're using your, your cell phone signal, I encourage you to jump on the app store right now and download it. It's free. It's called um, The Story. If you look up Spread Truth, you will find it, okay? So... I'm going to go and uh, talk to Woodley about the story. Okay, just assume that we already know each other and we've kind of built up a relationship. All right. How you doing, Woods? I'm doing well. Thank you. Good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Um, you know, Woods, you and I have been having a lot of interesting conversations about about God and, and um, you know some of the some of the struggles that you've had in your life. Yeah. Um, and I appreciate you being willing to meet with me today. Uh, I promise I won't take. Too much of your time, I know nobody likes to hear a preacher drilling on, so sure. I promise I won't do that. But you, you said it was okay for me to take like five minutes yeah. to just explain this to you? Sure. All right. The whole story of the Bible in five minutes. Okay. Can you do that? Yep. All right. Now, what I would say is that it's the story of God, okay. but it's more than that. It's the story of history. Uh, a lot of people look at the Bible as just simply a collection of, you know, rules or principles, but it's one overarching story. It tells the beginning, the middle, and the end of the entire human race. So, I got this, uh, I got this handy dandy app here, um, and it explains it, or it really asks the question, how did it begin? Have you ever wondered, how did this begin? Yeah, I've wondered before, and um, my science teacher answered it. Okay. That was done through evolution. Done through evolution? Yeah. Uh, how do you feel about that? I'm kind of shaky about it, yeah. and I'm not 100% sure what I believe. Various Christians talk about um, creation, mm -hmm. um, so I'm not 100 sure what I believe. Okay, you know I think that's a that's a cool place to be at. Um, we don't have to have certainty, um, but if you're an honest seeker of truth, it's okay to say I don't know what I believe. I don't fully have the answers. Um, of course, I come at it from a Christian point of view, so I believe that God created the world, um, and the Bible says that when God made everything. We made it perfect. So, have you ever read any of the Bible? Uh, barely. Okay. Um, well, it, at the very beginning, first few chapters of Genesis, uh, God says that everything is perfect. Everything is really, really good. But the problem is, as this picture illustrates, something went wrong, right? Yeah, I mean, you said God created this world perfect. I look around the world. I don't see right. yeah. perfection. Um, you see racism. You see poverty. You Absolutely. see war. Absolutely. You see terrorism. Yeah. Um, you see your own shrinking bank account, right? You're like, well, this is wrong. Um, so we're like, what went wrong? And, and I think that's why a lot of times sometimes we struggle. We're like, you know, if there is a God, why is everything so jacked up? You ever felt that way? Absolutely. Okay. So the cool thing about the story of the Bible is that it answers the question, how do we all begin? And it also answers the question, what went wrong? Because you see, the Bible says that God is not responsible for all that is wrong. The Bible says that 
there was a real man and a real woman named Adam and Eve. I know your your science teacher may not believe that they're a real couple, but let's let's push that to the to the back here for for a second. For the sake of argument, let's consider that maybe just maybe, like God said, if there were really a real man and a real woman, and they really did sin against God and they plunged the entire universe uh, into sin, there would be results of that, don't you think? Yeah. We would see like every day we'd see hurricanes and tornadoes and broken subways and racism and poverty and war and all of those problems. Do you think? Okay. So you see, I don't think necessarily that uh, as a Christian I can prove that God exists or prove that the Bible is the only right way. But what I think is that this story provides me a way to think about the world and to evaluate these different things. And I see, I look around and I see that something has gone wrong. But I also see that the Bible has an explanation for that. Um, do you swim? I do not, no. Okay. Well, um, for those of you who aren't looking, this is a picture of a life preserver. Um, so I'm going to tell you a really embarrassing story. Okay. I do swim, but um, on my honeymoon, uh, Sonia and I went snorkeling off of a, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, a reef, right? We went snorkeling off of a reef. I had never done this before, and uh, really, I'll just be honest, I freaked out. I panicked. Um, I got in the water, my, my goggles fogged up, and I couldn't see. And then I swallowed water through the tube, and even though I can swim perfectly fine, I freaked out because I had a little bit, a tiny bit of water in my lungs, and I couldn't see. And so the lifeguard in the boat had to jump off, and she had to swim to me, grab me, and pull me back to the boat. So, um, yeah. uh, so here I am on my honeymoon, right, trying to impress my new bride, and uh, yeah, I had to be saved. But I think that really illustrates the point of this picture. So, the question is, is there any hope? We live in a world, and we're drowning with all of the chaos and the despair, uh, the sinfulness that separates us from God. The Bible teaches that because of that sinfulness. We are so separated from God that when we die, we're going to be separated from Him forever and ever. Um, and it's not like you're drowning. You can't swim. You need somebody to save you. You need that lifeguard to jump in and say, hey, look, I can save you. Um, I don't know if you ever, ever uh, heard this, but they always teach you that if you're trying to rescue a drowning person, they have to quit fighting. Otherwise, it's not going to work. Um, because they'll, they'll fight you and they may drag you down or you might just not be able to get them to shore. Um, that lifeguard was able to pull me back to the boat because I quit trying. Mm. I quit trying to save myself. I quit trying to swim. I couldn't see. I was panicked. It was humiliating. Um, and that's a little bit like what God does for us because he steps into our brokenness. He steps into the problem that we have and he says, I'll be your rescue. Christians talk about Jesus. Have you seen? Have you seen like a crucifix or a picture of a cross or anything? Yeah, I grab my way the crucifix all the time. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what that's supposed to symbolize is the death of Jesus on the cross, which for Christians is a really, really big deal, because we think that that's the only rescue that we have. That's the only way that that we're able to. It's like Jesus jumps into the water with us and he says, "I'm going to pull you, kicking and screaming, back to the boat. I'm going to save your life." Let's save your soul. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Um, last question here in the whole story of God, the story of the human race, is what will the future hold? 
Um, you ever wonder what the future holds? Not really. Not really? No. Um, you think it always work, work at the job that you're at now? You know, maybe. Maybe. So. I, I, I don't really put a lot of thought yeah. into it. Okay. Um, you ever wonder if you'll get married, have kids, grandkids, yeah. make more money? Um, all right, I'm going to wrap it up with this. There are many great ways to share your faith, many variety of methods to share the gospel, but I want us to have a mosaic method. So I want you to take that booklet, and I want you to make that your go-to way to share your faith. I had the privilege of leading someone to Christ this week using that booklet. Um, he came in ready to talk about I thought he was ready to talk about something else, and all we did was walk through that booklet, and he trusted in Jesus, and he got saved. Um, one of the things that I've learned about the early church, those first 300 years after Christ, is they obsessed over sharing their faith, and that's why they turned the Roman Empire upside down. They were gripped by this sense of urgency. They, they would stop people in the marketplace. They would stop people on the way to the doctor because they were gripped by this reality of this afterlife, this heaven and this hell. If Jesus really were real, as they believed that he was, then that would change the way that they lived. I believe that God wants us to up our game with this here at Mosaic. I believe that we've done a lot of cool things, a lot of great things, become family in many ways. 
But my prayer and the prayer of, of the leaders here at Mosaic is that in 2016, our number one goal is that God would raise the evangelistic temperature here at Mosaic so that we are walking around obsessively, compulsively sharing our faith. I know that sounds a little weird. But I really want us to be gripped with this urgent sense that we are on mission. Philip was. He changed the way he lived. There's a writer named David Platt who said that to follow Jesus is to live with urgent obedience to his mission. You see, there is a mission. It encompasses the story of the Bible, the story of the human race. And God invites us into it, gives us the privilege of joining him on his mission. He says, follow me and live with urgent obedience to this mission. Discipleship is three things. It's learning the teachings of Jesus. It's imitating his behavior. Then it's making more disciples. If we're not willing to make more disciples, we should quit calling ourselves disciples. Because we are all billboards. Walking, talking billboards for Jesus. So we're going to end this sermon a little bit differently. We've got a song that we're going to play before our band comes. And as we sing this song, I'm going to invite you to come to the front to kneel in prayer and to pray for those that God has put in your life that he wants you to share your faith with. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's somebody that you've been coexisting with for months. The thoughts never really occurred to you, or maybe it has, but you've been afraid. We are God's billboards. He's called us to act. He's called us to share. So let's go ahead and play that song. I'm going to invite you to come as God leads you to kneel for a moment and to pray for those in your life. And then at the end of the song, the band will lead us in one final song. Is it playing, Mark?
somebody decided to tell us. Because we want to be part of that world that in the song where Craig says, I'm going to tell the world. Um, I was so excited to see my friend trust Christ on Wednesday. Um, so burdened for the guy that I stopped to talk to on the way to church today. My friend Butch and others. Just praying that in 2016, 